Lord, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we ponder at our own lives and the struggles that we may be going through. Some might be here today and everything seems to be going well. And yet we know that life isn't always a smooth ride. That trouble comes. We experience suffering. It's often unexpected. And yet... You give us counsel, you give us direction, you give us wisdom. Lord, you've given us this book to gain perspective on what life is like when we suffer and the kind of pressures and voices that we have to endure and how we need to fight to see you in right perspective. So Lord, allow us now to enter into this text, into this book, in such a way that you can have your way with us, that we can be strengthened, and we can be counseled, and we can be encouraged to rejoice in you, even in the midst of our struggle. We ask this now in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I realize maybe for you who are reading that for the first time, That just seems like a lot of words. It's a lot to read. It's a lot of poetry. And I realize that um, it can be hard. And so I want to simplify it this morning. And I, I want us to see what is taking place. But let's just begin by reminding ourselves of one of the statements that is true from the New Testament. And that is this, that the just shall live by what? Faith. Those who are truly his will fight through their struggle to exercise faith in their sovereign God. They may not know what he's doing or why he's doing it, but they eventually fight against all the unbelief in their heart and around them that seeks to pull them away from what they know to be true about God and about God's ways and what he says about his children. They fight for the truth. And that is why we have in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, a whole chapter of of testimony of Old Testament saints who have demonstrated their faith, who've exercised their faith by believing in the promises of God, by trusting in what God has said. And it is is their their anchor to, to face their struggle by trusting in those promises. And and Hebrews just magnifies that and demonstrates that as an example for us. And friends, that is what we, we find happening here in Job 12 through 14. There's a sense in which Job is roused up by the words of Zophar, the third friend who speaks, and that he begins now to take action. And it's action in words against his friend and words toward God. He's emboldened by his faith in God to confront and rebuke his friends for their disloyalty and their faulty theology and counsel, and then also to turn to God and boldly stand before him and to be heard. And friends, genuine faith will do that. It will fuel the believer to stand tall and to stand with God. And so what we learn from these two chapters is that faith in God and his ways is the fuel you and I need to persevere through our suffering. We need to be people of faith. Now let's put some things in perspective. A lot of things have happened to Job. Right? He's lost his family. He's lost his, his health. He's lost his reputation. He's lost his stuff. He's sitting in an ash heap. His three friends come, and he's longing for for consolation from them, but they sit there for seven days in silence. You say, well, that's, that's a great contribution. They sat with him, yes, but come on, seven days? That's awkward. And then when they do begin to speak, they give him counsel that is not helpful. And every time... One of them speaks. There's some good stuff, but then there's this, there's this theme, and the theme is this. 
The reason you're suffering, Job, is because of sin in your life. That's the way the world works. God punishes sin. God blesses righteousness. Now, as we come to our text today, I want to just kind of help us understand the structure of it. It divides into two parts. I realize we have three chapters. Remember, the chapters are put in there afterwards to help people navigate the story. But the actual flow of thought falls into two sections. The first section, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, 19, Job is speaking to his friends. From chapter 13, 20 to the end of chapter 14, Job is speaking to God. So he has something to say to his friends, and he has something to say to God. But understand this, it is his faith that is fueling now his conversation with his friends, and it's his faith that is fueling his conversation with God. He is, so to speak, he is motivated by faith now, having listened to his friends, to say enough is enough. I must speak. And so that is where we find ourselves in this text. So we begin now by looking at Job's faith in the faith, uh, face of his friends. And here in this section, Job gives evidence to his faith by standing firm on what he knows to be true about his innocence by emphasizing the character of God and his ways, and then the foolishness of the wisdom and theology of his friends. And what he does is he rebukes them on three levels, and then he comes to a conclusion. So let's begin by looking at this first rebuke. Job rebukes their arrogant wisdom. Now we're not going to read through all the chapters again as we go through this sermon, but understand we're going to kind of highlight things that he says. First of all, he says, it is a cruel wisdom. And notice how he begins here. No doubt, you are the people. This is kind of his sarcasm kicking in. You think you are the ones who are the important ones. You have arrived. You are, this this expression has an idea of, of focusing on the upper class, the people who really matter. And so now, In a sarcastic tone, he's saying, I am sure that you are the significant ones in the world, so significant, in fact, that when you die, you will take the world's wisdom with you to the grave. And there will not be any wisdom left in the world when you are gone. This is the kind of way he's speaking now to his friends. And then Job challenges their their elite and exclusive wisdom, and he tells them that he is just as qualified in wisdom and understanding as they are. But this is a cruel world. You want to draw your attention to verse 4. He says, I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. So he's appealing once again to his innocence, but he's also appealing to the fact that he has already uh, cried out to God. He has already appealed to God. In other words, this is a statement of faith. This is a statement of of allegiance to God. So I I am in the right with God. I am blameless before God, but even then, according to my friend's wisdom, I'm a laughing stock. But why is that the case? Because in their wisdom, it is those who are suffering misfortune. They are suffering that way because of their sin. And those who are at ease, they despise those who are suffering because in their minds, those who are suffering are suffering because of sin. So those whose whose feet slip because of sin Small sins, significant sins, secret sins. If you remember, we summarized that as kind of the three ways the friends were approaching Job. They are rejecting him. And so for them, misfortune is evidence of unforgiving sin. And friends, that is cruel. In fact, in the context of what he's saying here, notice uh, Notice how in verse 6 it says the tents of robbers are are at peace and those who provoke God are secure who bring their God in their hand. In other words, it's more peaceful, it's more secure for people who are opposed to God, who are robbers, than there is for someone like me who's standing in a right relationship with God according to their wisdom. It's cruel. 
Their wisdom is cruel. Secondly, their wisdom is shallow. Notice these expressions here. He's saying, listen, what you've told me is nothing new. The birds, the beasts, the bushes, the fish, they all know it. They all know what the hand of the Lord has done. To them, this is no secret. He's the one who holds life in his hand. So you think you're wise beyond everyone else, but you are just speaking the wisdom that creation already knows. See, creation knows that the hand of the Lord, God's sovereignty is behind every calamity it befalls. Whatever happens is because God has decreed it or ordained it. That's what the beasts know. That's what the birds know. That's what the bushes understand. That's what the fish know. So God's sovereignty over life should be obvious, so obvious, so much so, that it's like the, the relationship between the, the ears and words. You see that? When I speak, you hear. That's natural. That's normal. That's obvious. That's clear. That's what he's saying here. It's just as natural as mouth and food. When you get food, you put it in your mouth. Both of those things are natural. And so what they're saying is God's sovereign hand over the affairs of this world, bringing Difficulty in life or bringing blessing in life is all part of God's sovereignty. It's as natural as the hand and, and, and the mouth. It's as na- sorry, the, the food in the mouth. It's as natural as the ear in words. So according to Job, their wisdom, it's a shallow wisdom. It's simply God 101. So he's rebuking their arrogant wisdom. You posture yourself as being so smart and so wise, but your view is basic. Secondly, he rebukes their distorted theology. What he's saying is that their view of God is extremely soft in comparison to who he really is. He isn't a God who just sits back and either brings blessing to those who have been you know, obedient or, or, or suffering to those who are not, He's not a tame, predictable God, or a God you can just kind of put a a coin in a slot machine, boom, this is what's going to happen. He is dangerous. He's unpredictable. And he uses three examples in the next number of verses to describe that. He uses natural disasters. He's both a God who knows what to do and has the power to do it. Notice what he does. He tears down. He shuts man in. He withholds the waters. That means he brings famine. He sends out the waters. He brings a flood. So your God is so neat and tidy that you really don't understand him. Here's here's what's going on. You ever heard the expression, you can't put God in a box? You ever heard that before? Now, the idea behind it is you create your own theological system, and you try and force the God of the universe into that box. It can't be done. But that's what he's saying that they are doing. God creates his own box. His box is determined by what he reveals to us about himself in the pages of God's word. Now we've got to be careful that we don't come and somehow take what we want God to be and force that into the box. We've just got to come and look at the box that God has already laid out to say, this is who I am. And what they're doing is they're seeking to force God neatly into their box. And so he, he illustrates that with these natural disasters. But he also illustrates it with human leaders. We read here the, the, the undoing of, of the human power and wisdom. Let's read verses 16 and following. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are as his. He leads counselors away stripped, and judges he makes fools. He looses the the bonds of kings and binds the waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. See, all these things God is doing. God raises up. God brings down. He holds people accountable. He is in control. He is dangerous, and he is unpredictable in that sense. And all of this leaves these leaders speechless. They have nothing to say. He's not predictable. And third, what happens with the leaders also happens with the nations. What we see here is that he brings evil and chaos into an ordered world. He plays with nations. He raises them up and casts them down. He enlarges their borders, and he leads them away into exile and captivity. 
How many nations have, have wanted to grow and grow, and yet God in his sovereignty brings a shrinking to that nation? You know, empires rise up, and then they die down. And that's all part of God's plan. He's sovereign. He's in control of that. So not only that, but, but he, he blinds their wisdom and understanding so that they are left to grope in the darkness and stagger like drunken men. That's verse 25. Friends, that is not a tame God. That is not a wimpy God. That is, that is not a predictable God. No, that is the picture of a dangerous, unpredictable, but sovereign God. But these friends have a distorted and predictable view of God, but that is not who God is, and that is not how God works. So Job is coming along saying, listen, your wisdom is arrogant. Your view of God is distorted. But then he continues on, and he rebukes their worthless conclusions. That's verses 1 through 12 of chapter 13. He's saying, listen, I have personally had eyewitness accounts that God is a dangerous and unpredictable God. My eyes have seen it, my ears have heard it and understood it, and what you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, he says. I know your wisdom, I know your counsel, I know your system of understanding God and his ways, and it just will not do. So I would rather speak to the Almighty and argue my case with him then talk to you. But you need to know that your counsel and wisdom is all deception. Look at verse four. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Now he's referring to all the things that his friends have said so far. You are worthless physicians. So whitewashing his suffering with lies has the picture here of, of painting over Job's suffering with a shallow coat of distorted theology in order to make it look tidy. To say, well, the reason you're suffering is because of your sin. There it is. How simple that is, but it's not that simple in God's book. It's far more complex than that. You are worthless physicians. You're offering a medicine that is only a placebo. Have you ever had that before? I remember when I was a child, um, I would struggle with some stomach issues and as a result wouldn't go to school. And so I went to see the doctor and you know, the doctor poked around and looked around and, and you know, I, I don't think he found anything. And so he, he um, wrote a prescription, it was for this big, big container of these pills and they were like multicolored pills, had like spots and dots all over them, you know. And, and I could tell, but it's like, these were not real pills. They were just placebo. They were just, they were just sugar pills, basically. Just to pretend like I'm taking something and this will make you feel better. Like he was thinking this was all psychological or I was just playing a game or whatever it might be. This is what he's talking about. The things that you have said are so far off the mark that you're offering me something that doesn't help at all. And you're worthless physicians. You just make my situation more difficult. So I wish that you would just be quiet. That is the closest you would get to wisdom. It's something you should not say too often to someone. Um, that's in verse 5. Notice what it says. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Now, here's what he's saying. Listen, you are taking God, and you're showing partiality toward him. That seems like a strange expression, but what he's saying is you are taking God, and you're forcing him now to fit into your ideas. And you're saying, this is God's ways. But they're not God's ways. They're the ways that you have come up with that seek to understand this world, but it's not what God has revealed. And so he says, listen, when, 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 you, when he discovers that you are distorting his truth to make him look good, 
he will be very angry with you. In other words, they want God to appear to be good. They want God to, 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 be, to be up there, to be seen, and to be worshipped. But it's a God that they have created. And friends, there's a tendency in our culture to do that. We adjust what God's word says, and we paint a picture of God that society will like. And so we create a different God. And we force that God into the box of, of I would say, orthodox Christianity. But that just will not do, because that is not God. God is who he is revealed in Scripture, not a God that you fashion and shape to be popular in society. He is the one to be worshipped. And so he says this, understand this, my friends, it is not I who is in danger from God, it is you. Notice what he says there, verse 9. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? When God comes knocking at your door and saying, what are you doing? The issue's not going to be me, the issue's going to be you. Or can you deceive him as one deceives man? He will surely rebuke you. If in secret you show partiality, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. He will call you out, and he will terrify you because you will be exposed and your maxims or your teachings or your doctrine will be revealed for what it is, utterly worthless, utterly useless, a deception. They are burnt out ashes, useless clay. So because your wisdom and counsel, your theological system is so cruel and shallow and distorted and worthless, I must take my case to God. Now, friends, what I want you to see here is there is a trajectory going on in this text. He's, he's, he's built up, so to speak, the boldness now to speak to his friends. And it's faith that is fueling that. But as he's speaking, he is building up to this crescendo with his friends. And he's basically saying, listen, I'm not going to listen to your wisdom your theology is distorted, and your counsel is worthless, and so I must now turn to God and speak to him. He's fighting his way up to a place to say that. Now notice what happens as we continue on um, in... Oh, you guys didn't get that, huh? I'm sorry about that. Um, well, you heard me say it, but that's all. Another thing. All right. So Job now determines to stand before God with his friends as witnesses. So here, here's the picture. Job is saying, listen, I'm done talking with you for right now. I'm going to talk with God. But I'm going to talk with God, and you're going to listen. Now, friends, let's just take in a little bit of what he says here. Because Job's faith has fueled him to stand against his friend and pushes him now to stand boldly before God. Verses 13 and following. Let me have silence and I will speak. Let me, and let come on me what may. What should I take my, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Probably one of the more familiar texts in the book of Job is this, chapter 13 and verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Here's what Job is saying. Listen, it is a fearful thing to stand before God. And if you stand before God, God is going to expose you for your sin. He's going to reveal who you are. So if you stand before him and you survive, you will be very, very fortunate. But he's saying, listen, even if it kills me, I'm going to put my hope in him. Catch that? Though he slay me, though coming before God with all my trouble may be the most horrendous thing to do because I'm standing before a holy God, I'm willing to do that because my hope is in him. And what does he say? He says, yet I will argue my ways to his face. You see his faith here? His faith is against his friends but his faith is moving him now to stand before God and to speak. And this is the, this is the focal point of this, this section. So I know that godless people cannot stand in, in your presence, God. 
So what I desire to do is dangerous. I know it's a gamble, but I must do it. I must come and speak to you. So in verses 17 through 19, Job declares that he wants his friends to continue to listen to his words. He has thought long and hard about this, and he's confident that he will be vindicated as a true believer. So Job boldly presses on by faith to appeal to this dangerous, random, unpredictable God. But he's doing so knowing that the same God is righteous and just. The theological system of his friends is distorted, so now Job must appeal to what he knows to be true about God. That's the first section. And really, friends, it is set up for the second section. Friends, what you're saying is not worth listening to. So I must appeal to God. So now we move to chapter 13, verse 20. Job's faith in the face of his God. And in this section, Job reaches down into what he knows to be true about God and speaks boldly to God by faith. He makes a request. He then makes a logical appeal, but ultimately he will slip back into despair when he considers his circumstances again. He's finding himself in the, in the middle of a large wood and he's trying to get out. He has a plan. He has a course of action. And he's going he's gonna to pursue that plan, but eventually he finds himself overwhelmed by his circumstances once again, so, that he, so much so that he cannot see his way out. So let's first of all notice his request before God. He says, only grant me two things, then I will not hide my face, uh, myself from your face. So what are the two things? The two things are this, that God, you would, you would pause from inflicting suffering on me. All right, Job has been experiencing suffering after suffering. We've read it as the arrows of the Almighty in previous chapters. He's saying, God, would you please pause that suffering and then secondly, would you give me permission to speak? You guys remember the story of Esther? And when Esther came into uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Persian king, what he did with the scepter would determine whether she would die or whether she could speak. It's the same kind of image here. He's saying, God, God withhold your punishment. Give me permission to speak. Allow the scepter to be pointed in my direction so that I have freedom to speak. That's how he's approaching God. It's a wonderful request, it's a right request, but it prepares him now for what he's about to say. Job's appeal now to God, and it will fall into four parts. And this is a longer section as Job comes boldly before God, but he contemplates, first of all, the root problem of his sin, the struggle of mortality, the certainty of death and the hope of renewal, ultimately through a resurrection. So let's consider now the problem of sin. Notice in verses 23 through 25, all these, these, these words piled up where, where Job is saying, listen, I know I'm a sinful creature, right? There's in, iniquities, sins, transgression, sin. Verse 24, I'm your enemy, um, I, I'm like this, this leaf, I'm like this chaff that's being driven around. So he says, I know that, that I'm a sinful creature, that, that my sin is the heart of my issue before you, God. So he responds by saying, how many sins? Make me know my sin. And how does Job see himself? And there are these illustrations that are given to us. An enemy of God a dry leaf just blowing around in a winter gale. Chaff being tossed to and fro by the wind, which reminds you, of course, of Psalm 1. And Job feels that way because of all the bitter things that have happened to him and against him. And in his mind, these are the consequences of the sins of his youth. So now God is exposing his sin to public disgrace. People are able to see him as this as this this <coughs> disgraced person he feels uh, like 
God is treating him like a prisoner doing forced labor, so he cannot walk free. But Job thought that those sins had been covered by sacrifice. Now just pause here and think. We know from the beginning of this book that Job was ever faithful to offer sacrifices to God in case there had been sin. He had been keeping short accounts. And so the struggle here is this. Job says, I know that I am a sinful creature. I know that my sin is at the heart of the problem. But I've been coming to you regularly and offering sacrifices because of my sin. So why am I suffering this way? Why why is this happening to me? I don't understand. I thought I was blameless. I thought I was in a right standing before you because I've been consistent in offering the sacrifices for my sin. But then he talks then about not just specifically his sin, but he talks now about the struggle of mortality. Look at verse 28. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman, in other words, everyone, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. So he's, he's saying this, man who is born of a woman is like a rotten piece of vegetation, a moth-eaten garment, a withering flower, a fleeting shadow. Maybe a way that, that I could describe it a little bit is, is like my grill at home. This week I invited... Roman and Alex and Yulia to come over. Tell Roman when we're in Ukraine, you come over to my house when you're here and I'll cook you up some ribs. So I go out to my, my grill and I start getting things ready and I notice that my, the, the pan that catches all the grease has just gone, just collapsed. It's all rusted through. Now understand, I cover it, I do my best to protect it, but it still degenerates and it still just falls apart. That is the nature of the world that we live in. It degenerates. It gets rotten. It's a fleeting shadow. It's a withering flower. Life is brief. Only a few days. They are full of trouble and turmoil. And we all decay. We all rot away. But that is true of both the righteous and the unrighteous. So what hope is there for a rotten, moth-eaten, withering creature to stand clean before God? There is no hope. God has his eyes on Job and every person he sees, he sees them as unclean and will bring them to judgment. This is nothing other than, friends, the doctrine of man's total depravity. When God looks at man, he sees men as sinful. They they have sin in every part of their being. Now what this means is this. You might even do something good, but that good is tainted by sin. Okay? That's the, the doctrine of man's depravity. Now obviously all that changes when Christ comes into your life. Your sin is paid for. But we now still struggle with the lingering presence of sin in our lives that shapes our thinking and shapes our behavior. Sin is paid for, but its effect is still there. That's called the noetic effect of sin. So Job is saying every human creature is a sinner. We're all sinners in that sense. And we all deserve judgment. But what is it that I have done that has deserved such harsh treatment. Verse 5 now of chapter 14. Since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. He's saying, God, listen, if his days are numbered, if his life is short, why don't you just like leave him alone for a bit? So he can just enjoy some time. And he's giving this picture of a, of, a, of, a, of a laborer who's been working, working hard, and he's just longing for a break, just to get a break, maybe for a cup of water or enjoy a cup of coffee or, as the British would say, to have a cup of tea. If you ever watch any British shows, you know the answer to everyone's problem is not Christ, it's a cup of tea, right? We need to change that thinking. The point is he's saying just give some relief. So man is sinful and man is mortal, but man's mortality leads to death, the certainty of death. And he uses two illustrations to show 
the hopelessness of death. A tree and disappearing water. And he says here in verse 7, for there is hope for a tree. Now, a lot of Californians would like that. All right? They love their trees. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again and that its shoots will not cease. If you go to Muir Woods and you cut down one of those huge, huge redwoods, fall over and make a mess, you say, oh man, that tree's dead. But oh no, it's not. <laughs> a little bit of water, a few shoots will sprout up, life will come, it will continue. But not so with man. Man's not like a tree. He can be cut down. And when he's cut down, guess what? It's final. He's dead. He's done with. Man is like a riverbed. That's what we're told here. Verse 10. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and rivers wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. He's like a riverbed that had water, but it's gone. There's no life there at all. So these are two images kind of pitting against each other. He's saying ultimately that death is certain for man. Man's problem is his sin. Trouble, struggle, suffering is the, the normal uh, circumstance for mankind or for mortal man, and death is ultimately certain. And so, what hope is there for man? All of this has been building up to a crescendo of what Job is about to say next, for certainly it is unexpected. And what we have before us now is profound gospel rooted in the pages of the Old Testament. And friends, I want you to hear that. As Job is wrestling with what's happening with him, as he's crying out to God, he recognizes his sin and that, that it needs to be dealt with. He recognizes the mortality of man. He recognizes the certainty of death, but he also is putting his hope in renewal. And what he says here seems to be a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction because what he has been describing is natural law, but what is true is supernatural law. There's the natural world and there's the supernatural world. Man dies, his life is over in a physical sense. But there is renewal and hope in a spiritual sense. One commentator described verses 13 through 17 here as a wonderful and very personal passage. This is one-on-one, -on -one, the believer speaking to God that he loves. Think carefully with me now about what Job is saying. Verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Now, just, I understand this sounds strange. God, hide me in the grave? That's what he's saying. I know that I'm heading to Sheol. I know I'm heading to that place of the dead where there is no return, so please hide me there. Conceal me until your wrath is past. Set a time and remember me. And then he asks the question, verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. So if a man dies, if he is taken to Sheol, the place of the dead, can, can God hide him? God can conceal him until God's wrath is past. And at an appointed time, God can remember man and renew him so that he can live again. Does this sound like something to you? See, this word renew literally means to change one's clothes. And it's the same analogy that Paul brings in to 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to begin reading here at verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. You've heard this before. You've heard this at funerals. And there's a reason why Paul is saying it, and it's connected to what Job is saying here. He says, in speaking about the resurrection, for this perishable, perishable body must put on the imperishable, 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. There's that change of clothes language. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Do you hear what Job is saying? Sin is the issue. Man who is mortal suffers. Death is certain. But for those who hope in God, there is the promise of renewal, and he's referring here to a resurrection. And verse 14 lets us know that if a man dies, shall he live again? The answer is yes, 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 if his hope is in God. So this renewal that Job is talking about is a foreshadowing of what this takes place in the believer because of what Jesus has accomplished by virtue of the cross and the resurrection. Man dies, but an appointed, at an appointed time, God remembers and raises him up to a new life. So there's this renewal. But notice there's also a new relationship or a relationship that is established once he has risen up. Verse 19, you would call and I would answer you. You would long for work of your hands, for then you would number my steps and would not keep watch over my sin. He's saying God's going to call. God's going to be looking for his created one, that would be Job. And he's going to keep watch over my life. He's going he's to number my steps like a father is, is watching over his children. And the end result would be rest because God has securely put away Job's sin. Look at verse 17. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag. Now you've heard, you've heard biblical descriptions about what does God do with your sin? He casts it as far as the east is from the west, right? Throws it into the depths of the sea. Here's the image. He takes all your sin into a garbage bag, he seals it up, and he throws it away. That's the image he's using here to describe what God does with his sin. This is the security that he has. Secondly, he describes it here as, and you would cover over my iniquity. You would paint over my sins. They are covered, they are sealed up, they are put away. This is an echo of what we hear the prophet Isaiah saying in chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, I don't know about you, but I am blown away that Job would be leading his talk with God to this place. And that in the Old Testament here, in this section, that he would have enough faith not only to approach God, but to approach God so boldly with a hope and a certainty of this kind of renewal. So what we have here is resurrection, renewal, relationship, and rest. This is what Job sees. This is what he longs for. It's a huge step of faith. He had said to his friends, though he slay me, I will hope in him. That was the first step of faith, so to speak, by virtue of speaking to friends, now turning to God, and secondly now, though I am a sinful, mortal, deserving of death, I hope for a resurrection that will renew and restore my relationship with you, God. This is faith. And Job is sorting through his struggle by faith. And friends, that's the fuel that we need to persevere in our struggles. But here's the problem. Once our eyes are moved from the object of our faith into our circumstances, we can so easily degenerate back into despair. And that is what we find Job doing. Four analogies from nature describe that. Verse 18, Job's despair because of God. But the mountain falls and crumbles away. The rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. He's saying God is forever against man. 
You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and, he sent, and send him away. His sons come to honor, and does, he does not know it. They, they are brought low, and he perceives the night. He's saying, when you die, you're not going to even know about the, the hope or the good things that your kids do or even the bad things that your kids do. You're just not going to know. He feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. He feels physical pain and mental anguish. Friends, this is the picture of life without resurrection. Hopelessness, despair, sorrow, pain. What we find in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we're all still in our sins. We are all to be pitied. Now, friends, it's, it's worth us noting, and I want you to see the trajectory, how, how Job moved by faith with his friends to say, I need to talk with God, that's what I'm going to do, even if I die in the course of it. But then as he talks to God, and he begins to talk about what he knows to be true about God and about what God says about mankind, he is rising up to this place where he is exercising faith, and he sees this promise and this hope of renewal, and he's longing for it, and he wants it. And yet so quickly, he drops away from that into despair. And friends, we are like that. We are people who are emboldened by faith. You can walk out of a time where you're gathering at church or a Bible study or a conversation with a friend. You're like, yes, I'm going to live for the Lord. Yes, I'm going to trust in his promises. Yes, I have perspective about what's going on. And all of a sudden, the realities of life hit you, and on, boom, down you go again. And there's, there's an honest rawness about what's happening with Job here. But don't miss this fight, this battle for faith that Job is experiencing here. And this is what I want to conclude with. Two things that flow out of this. Number one, are you standing tall against the voices opposed to God? Friends, we live in a world with so many different voices, but certainly there are voices that are clearly against God, right? You know what they are. You hear them, and often you're intimidated by them because even the the simple, basic, biblical reason that you can offer for those voices is going to be slapped away because they don't care. But there are other voices that are more subtle, but they're still in opposition to God. And unfortunately, they can come from people who are close to you, your friends, your family, your spouse, your children, even your church. And the Apostle Paul warns young Timothy in the last days there will be times of difficulty. Turn to 2 Timothy, if you would, please, in chapter 3. I want you to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 1 through 7. We often read this passage in a certain way. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. How, how is this usually understood? Kind of like this is the Lord's coming stuff, right? These are the last days. We're ready for his coming, right? Understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and captive or capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And we're tempted to read a passage like this and say, yeah, these must be the last days because that's, that's how the world is. And Paul's point in bringing this up to Timothy is saying, this is what the last days are going to look like in the church. See, the church can degenerate to such a point because they have their eyes removed from God and from his word that they begin to think that this is normal life. So Paul counsels Timothy to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. And he was calling Timothy to continue in the scriptures. That is the reason why we have this passage in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 
this statement, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's the every good work he's talking about? He's talking about living life, ministering in the context of a church that has run amok. And the bottom line is this, what Paul is saying to Timothy is what you need is the word of God. What the church needs is the word of God. What you and I need is the word of God. And so I, I want to appeal to you. What, what, what Job is crying out for to his friends is not some man-made view of God, but for a God that is the true God that is revealed to man and is applied then as a picture of who God really is. We have that in the word of God. And how do we respond to those voices that are opposed to God? We continue in the scriptures. It is only in the scriptures that we can find the right answers and the right understanding of how to live life in this kind of context. Secondly, are you standing with God? And that means we must be willing to fight for faith in the middle of our struggles. You see, we need refreshment that comes from the word of God. We need hope that comes from the promises of the resurrection. We need to believe that we are God's children, that, that we are identified as his, and that he is sovereignly counting our steps. And we need the body of Christ to call us back to those three realities. Identity in Christ, new life in Christ, the word of God, faith in God and his ways, is the fuel you and I need to persevere through our suffering. Friends, would you take that home with you? Would you think it through? Would you apply it to your circumstances? Would you seek to understand Job and his wrestling match to get to the place where he is pouring out his heart before God? Lord, help us. We, we need Wisdom, we need counsel. And we thank you for the somewhat complicated but clear awareness that we need to be people of faith, trusting in who you are, what we know to be true about you, what we know to be true about your ways. And that although there may be voices that tell us things that are different, that distort our understanding of what's going on, or our view even of life, that clarity and comfort comes by trusting in you. Help us to fight by faith for those things. We ask in your name, amen.